The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. This morning we turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 29. And this chapter is still a part of the, of the great big long speech that is Deuteronomy, but as is apparent from this passage, it takes place after a short break in the day. Moses summons the people all back together to give them yet one more final encouraging warning as they take this covenant upon themselves personally. And as we read it in a moment, you'll notice that there are several connect points, there are several commonalities between this passage and last week's passage about the blessings and the curses that we looked at. There are several connect points. There are warnings here about the enactments of the curses that are coming up in the future. And importantly, just like last week, there is also a window through which we can look and see how it is that God aims to bring about that which God desires. He desires holiness and obedience in his people. How is he going to make that happen? How is he going to bring that about? We can see it again in this passage, just like last week, plus a couple of other different things, two other additional things. We're going to look through the window and see this, and there are a couple other little pieces, and I'm going to focus on those two other little pieces today. That's what I'm going to kind of lean on so as not to just strictly repeat last week's sermon, though we could do that forever. I'm going to lean on a couple of different things this morning. That's what we're going to see there, how God means to help us, how He means to shepherd us towards what it is that He desires and what it is that blesses us. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, and I hope, I've been praying that you find encouragement for your souls, and that God instructs us as a church a little bit more about what we are supposed to be. So I'm going to read the whole chapter, Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 2 through the end. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. When you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore... Keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. 
The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation... Your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known, whom He had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath, and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29. There are three main sections of this passage. We're going to be spending the majority of our time in the first and the last section. We need to get an overview of all three here briefly at the beginning. The first section, 2 to 9, contains a lot of familiar information. If you've been following along with us, you've seen already that this is very familiar material for this book. Moses is continually revisiting what God did back then in the Exodus and what he did in the wilderness. And this particular information is similar to what we saw in in chapter 8. But really, as I said, it's all over the book. There's a consistent pattern here. Moses pointing back pointing at the grace of God so as to, to buttress, to, to, support, to, to support an exhortation about the future, which comes up here in verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant so that you may prosper. God wants them to obey in the future, and so Moses gives them this one final charge. That's the first section. And then in 10 to 15 the summary of what's going on actually at this very moment. People are all gathered there together from the highest level, the the chief leaders, all the way down to the lowest of all possible servants. All the people are gathered together and they are taking upon themselves, they are affirming today this covenant. It's applying to them. And, And there's a repeated word there, today. Today you're here. Today you're here. It's trying to underline something for them, that this is for you Today, this is, not, this is not Dad's covenant. Now, it was made 40 years ago on Mount Horeb. But the point is that there's, there's always a today for the next generation, whether it be here in the plains of Moab or once they cross over to the promised land at Mount Ebal or following that in the ceremonies of the temple that will come into existence. Continually in each generation, there's a today in which the people say, yes, that's us. That's our God. We are His people. That's mine. Not just dads, not just grandpas, not something way back in history books. It's us today. We reaffirm the covenant. It keeps it fresh and clear for us. Now, they're already in it. In the verse 15 says that it's made with those who are not here today, meaning the next generations. They're, they're in it, but they're taking it on themselves and considering the covenant and contemplating the curses, which is the third section, 16 to 29. What may, and in hindsight we know, did happen in the future, going forward from this point in time. Verse 9 says, keep the covenant that you may prosper. Verses 16 and following say, however, if you don't, there is trouble waiting. 16, 17, you have seen the idolatry of the nations that is among them. Beware, lest any that be among you. See how he turns that. It's there in them. It must not be in you. Watch out that there not be a person 
or a group of people among you who in heart is turning away from God. A root bearing poisonous or bitter fruit. Poison. Deadly. Bitterness. Deadly. Watch out for that among you. This is an intriguing picture here. It's a, a hidden danger. A root is underground. You can't see it growing. But it grows, it spreads, it takes over, and then up pops the plant with the fruit on it that destroys. There's, there's a man here who says in his heart, Yes, I hear the words of the covenant. Sure. Ah, I'm okay. I'm fine. Nobody's going to know anyway because it's in my heart and I keep it very silent and I only share it with those who are likely to be like-minded. And if they prove not to be, then I draw back and say I was just kidding. But I share it with those who are like-minded only. And so nobody finds out. And besides, if God's going to make it rain on my neighbor's farm, it's going to rain on mine too. I'm okay. I'm just fine. Not so, says the Lord. It's the other way around, in fact. Not that His blessing is going to overflow unto you, but your trouble is going to overflow unto Him. It will destroy the moist and the dry alike. A proverb that means everything. Think of plants. Moist plants are living. Dry plants are dead. Both of them are going to be uprooted and thrown out of the land. So take care, he says. And from 20 to the end, it lays out the impact of what that what that idolatry would cause on the individual and then on the community as a whole. And this section is the tightest concentration of wrath in the whole book of Deuteronomy. If you follow through there, there are a number of different words all indicating anger some way or another. There's the imagery of fire and smoke, which of course is, is fierce, destructive fury. The Lord sees. It's not hidden from Him. He sees. And He can figure out how to punish individuals and how to punish the whole community when they abandon the covenant of the Lord. His anger burns hot against them. He will uproot them and throw them into a foreign land, into exile. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Well, when's that going to happen? Is it inevitable? Can anything be done to stop it or is it coming? And what about those who, who hold fast to Him? What, what will happen with them? And, and how is it that they will come to hold fast? And, and will He not have mercy? And what about His steadfast love? The secret things belong to God. We can never know everything about God's ways and His purposes. But He has revealed enough to us. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed have been revealed, laid out right in front of us so that we know what we are supposed to do. Follow Him and keep covenant and let there not be any other God before Him in our hearts, in our midst. That's the text. Chapter 29. Similar to a number of things we've already seen before, I'm going to bring out two new angles in this passage. Than just repeat everything, I'm going to bring out two new things that show up here. And my hope, as I said, is that this will personally encourage you and it will educate us as a church what we are to be like, what we're supposed to be like. So let me summarize this this morning in this following sentence here. Given new hearts and given a community, we can grow in holiness for our joy. And we want to grow in holiness for our joy. Holiness leads to joy. Talked about this last week. Holiness, the, the path of righteousness, the path of walking with God is the path for joy and gladness of heart. It is the path of blessing. It is the path of communion with God. We want to walk that path. And praise God, it is possible to grow in holiness, to pursue it because... Given new hearts and given a community given by God. God has given new hearts and God has given a community so therefore we can grow in holiness for our joy. Hearts and community are the two things that I'm going to unpack right now. The two new things in this passage. So, let me start with the first one. Here's the first observation. The sovereign grace of God 
enables holiness in his people. The sovereign grace of God enables holiness in us. This chapter has yet again another exhortation towards holiness, obedience, walking after the covenant. Keeps coming up everywhere. Verse 9, verse 25, verse 29. So again, obedience to God's law is very important to God. That we be a holy people as He is holy, very important to God. I've seen that before a number of times. I'm just going to state that this morning and move on to lean on something else. God means for us, He has as His goal for us, glad-hearted, joyful obedience. saw that last week. How does He get us there? Look through the window. We'll see. Look through the window and see. How does He get us there? Not just by commanding us. And not just by threatening or warning us. Though He does that, and that's valid, that's okay, He can command and He can threaten about imminent danger. But that's not primarily how He means to get us there. Primarily, he works by the mechanism of grace and promise. Pointing at past grace and promising more future grace to come from the same source from him. If we'll walk that way, there's more out there. Grace and promise. That's his primary mechanism. We saw that last week. It is his kindness, his grace that leads us to repentance and obedience. Last week, and it's in this text again this morning. The goal, verse 9, holiness, obedience. Therefore, keep the covenant. But a therefore indicates that it's based on something before. It's conclusion. Therefore, do this. Well, why? Well, what's before? Verses 2 to 8. What does he have there? A recounting of the abundant grace of God poured out on them. Verse 2. All that He did before your eyes in Egypt. Verse 3. The great trials that your eyes saw, signs and great wonders. And that was not just a magic show. It was His power bent on behalf of His people to deliver them. To bring them out of bondage. You saw it. All this done right before you. And then verses 5 and 6. He fed them. He provided for them in the desert. A provision that was not just physical feeding, but was designed to be spiritual feeding. That you may know that I am the Lord your God. End of verse 6. I did this not just to fill your bellies, but to fill your minds and hearts. To fill the inside you. That you may know me. Look. Do you not get a taste of my glorious grace that I would love you and save you out of bondage that you don't deserve it? Look, do you not get a taste of my glorious power that I can feed you and prosper you in a barren wilderness? Do you not get a taste of my glorious promise-keeping faithfulness that brought you here, defeated these strong enemies to keep my word sworn 450 years ago? See that. Do you not get a little bit of me that you may know me that I am the Lord? Therefore, keep this covenant with me. And there's more to come that you may prosper. Grace, promise. Have I not blessed you far beyond your wildest dreams and far beyond what you deserve? Have I not proven myself true? So believe me and walk this path with me into tomorrow's grace. It will be there. Come. That's the primary mechanism that God uses to motivate us to obedience. And it is marvelous. It is marvelous. Thank God that His primary mechanism is not whip. Can you imagine if His primary mechanism was punishment and chastisement and curse? There is warning because there is danger in walking away from Him. But His primary mechanism right here, and as as we noted, this is so common because this is so commonly His method. It is a glorious and beautiful thing that He motivates by hope in the heart. But right there, at the mention of heart... Just put our finger on a problem. 
that's in the verse that I've so far skipped. Verse 4. This is God's mechanism. You have seen what the Lord did before your eyes. The great trials your eyes saw. Verse 6. Done all this that you may know that He is the Lord your God. Problem. Verse 4. To this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You saw it with your own eyes, but you didn't see it. You don't have eyes to see it. You know that He is the Lord, but you don't have a heart to understand that. He has shown them plenty. He has poured out right in front of them, all over them, soaking them to the skin, abundant, remarkable grace. The problem is not in what God has not provided or what God has not done. The problem is in here. He had not yet given, and at this point, 40 years later, still has not yet given a new heart and never would in the Old Covenant. Which is why the last half of this chapter is coming. It's why it happens. The rejection of of God is in fact coming. God has a marvelous mechanism. A grace and promise. A hope in the heart mechanism. He lays out for how He works His people towards their joy and their gladness. But given what fallen people are from birth, There is something needed first if this mechanism of God is to work. He must do what verse 4 says He had not yet done. He must give a new heart. He must give new eyes, new ears. Spiritually speaking, of course, we're not talking physically. Spiritually speaking, He must give. Not, we must make. He must give. Not we must create or we must become or we must work towards. He must give in sovereign grace. Grace that is, which is effectual. Grace that accomplishes that which it intends to accomplish. Grace which reaches out and does something effectively, powerfully. A grace that is given as God chooses to whom and when. He had not yet given it. Now, to some he had, to Moses. Moses is writing this. Moses realizes what they don't have. Moses has it, but the people as a whole don't. And Moses knows they don't. The whole mass of them don't. He had not decided yet to give graciously. And, and to give graciously means that he doesn't have to. There's no obligation. He has not yet decided to do that. And he won't for 1,500 years yet. 1,500 more years. Until, as Ezekiel chapter 36 puts it, he will act in an awesome, decisive way to bring in a new covenant. Verse 26 of Ezekiel 36 says, And I will, in that day, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will put in a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26. What will cause these people to walk after God and obey Him? When God puts His Spirit, when God puts in a new heart after He takes out the old. That's the new covenant. The sovereign grace of God enables holiness in His people. 
as He gives new hearts that see Him, eyes that see Him, as He indwells with the Spirit and moves us to obedience, give that new heart and then, look through the window, the mechanism of grace works. Because what He's showing us there, we now have eyes to see it. What He's teaching us there, we now have hearts to understand it. It, it all laid out in front of us now with new hearts and new eyes given by the grace of God. It now appears as it always was, glorious and gracious, like a blind man given sight who now suddenly sees what already always was. And now seeing it, we follow Him willingly by choice in love. Christian. This is the new covenant. And it is awesome. Praise God for it. While we were yet sinners, rebels, He died for us to remove the curse from us, to give us new hearts, to awaken us. All the fury and the wrath and the fire and the smoke of the last half of this chapter should alert us to something sobering. Should get our attention. God is not mildly irritated with idolatrous rejection of Him. He is furious with it always. It is the supreme evil in all of the creation. And because God is good, He is furious with the rejection of Himself. Get that. Because God is good, He is resolutely opposed to the greatest evil in all the universe, in all the creation. If He was not, He would not be good. He is good, and so He is resolutely opposed to the the dethroning of God wherever it is. And we do it all the time. Which makes us, in the words of Ephesians 2, from birth by nature, children of wrath. But in that condition, At that place right there, God in gracious love sent His Son to be a propitiation. Complicated word. A propitiation, which means sent His Son to earth to take on a body to satisfy that wrath of God. That's what's going on at the cross. That at the cross, the wrath of God is propitiated, is satisfied and removed from all of those who trust Him. And graciously, undeservedly, of His own choosing and His own timing, He gave and still gives new hearts and new eyes to see that and embrace it. To whom? When? Why? The secret things belong to God. Doesn't satisfy us. But it's true. The secret things belong to God. We can't know the inner workings of God. We don't know why He gives and when He will and why He doesn't and why He doesn't yet. It could be that even this morning, right now, He means to give to you a new heart. That could be. I don't know everybody here. I don't don't know where you are, what your condition is. But it could be that right now He means to give you a new heart. And if you're sitting here and you're you're concerned and you see in yourself a, a desire for this new heart, a desire for forgiveness, a desire for life, a frustration, a resentment, a distaste growing in you for this old heart, that is in rebellion against Him and that is under His wrath, if that's, if that's in you, that could be the beginning of God's working in you. Respond to Him. Respond to His call. Turn to Him and say, help. 
Forgive me, a sinner. Give me, please, this gracious offer of life. Please, respond to Him. That's His call to every single person. If you're sitting here right now resentful of this, then He's not calling you right now. I'll pray that that moves on you later. But maybe He's calling you right now. Turn. Trust Him. He is good. We we don't know when and why and how. The secret things belong to God, but He has revealed enough to us for us to know that it is not because of anything we have done, but by His grace that He saves us. It's not because of anything we would do, not because of anything we are or anything we would become, that there's no answer to this why question that starts with, because I... That never is the answer. He has revealed that much to us. But there is enough here to know that He has acted. And by grace, this should lead us to never boast, but to sing forever and ever and ever of His glorious grace. The sovereign grace of God enables holiness in His people. That is a critical thing. If He did not sovereignly act to change and give a new heart, we would never see through the window and never see actually what He does and never respond to it and be changed. But He sovereignly worked to give new hearts to you, Christian. Praise God for that. He gave you what you couldn't get. We owe everything to the grace of God. But this passage presents something else, too. We human beings have an important role to play in the pursuit of holiness. That's the second observation. So here's the second point. Personal holiness is a community concern. Personal holiness is a community concern. It is enabled by the grace of God, but we graced people, we new heart-given people, as a community, we still have a role to play in individuals' lives. That's particularly clear in verses 18 and 19. And especially when we follow those verses into the New Testament and see what the book of Hebrews does with them. But we'll start right here in, in Deuteronomy. Verses 16 and following, we have this third section, which is spoken to the people of God as a whole. And he gives them a double warning there, beginning in verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you, lest there be in this big group, an individual or a little subgroup, with heart turning away from the Lord to serve other gods. And then, beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, saying in his heart, I'm fine. That's the warning to the whole community, warning them to watch out for members in the community. This is not just, and this is important because this is the point, this is important, it is not just watch yourselves. You watch you. It's you watch the community. See that point, this is the point. It's watch out for this among you. In this case, he's, he's talking about these two particular things, which are a whole bunch of other things too. Watch out that there not be this danger, this turning away, this, this infesting, growing threat to the whole community. Watch for that. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Is like a cancer that will grow and spread. So watch out, not only for the sake of that individual, but also for the sake of the whole body. Watch. Personal sin is a community danger. And so personal holiness is also a community concern. A concept that the book of Hebrews picks up on and expands. There's two warnings here in Deuteronomy, and you can hear both of them in the book of Hebrews. The first, the first warning, beginning of verse 18... You can hear in Hebrews 3, verse 12. It says there, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
Very similar to what he says here. And the second warning shows up in Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That's our warning right there against the root of bitterness. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, to the church. A warning about dangers in the heart. Now, wait a second. I thought you were just saying that we all have new hearts. New hearts that have been changed. So why is he warning about dangers in the heart? Well, yes, most of us have new hearts. But in every church, this one included, the church of the book of Hebrews included, in every church, there are people among the covenant community, not actually in the covenant, in the new covenant. There are people, and put that in another term, there are people in the community who have not been given new hearts and are not Christians. Some who know it, who are just here kind of checking things out. It's good. But some who don't realize it. Children, for instance, born in Christian homes, born in church-going homes, growing up, assuming. So, kids, you're five, you're six. There are some of you here, some of you are mine. Listen, I, I know I'm saying, I'll say a lot of things that are really complicated. I know you catch some things, but not everything. But you are not a Christian because your mom and dad are. That's not what makes you a Christian. You are not a Christian because you are in this building, in this body of people. It's something completely different than that. Ask your mom and dad about it later. Mom and dad, talk to them about it later. It does not have to do with where you're born or where you're sitting. It has to do with who you trust, what's going on in your heart. Talk to your parents about it later. But there are kids who grow up in the church family in Christian families assuming, and then there are adults who were kids who grew up and are still assuming. Because you sit here, you go to a Bible study, you've been in a committee and you give 10%. Guys, that's not what makes a person a Christian. That has nothing to do with it, in fact. Now, it has a little bit to do with it as a result, but has nothing to do causally So there are some always in every church that have actually not been given new hearts. But even for us who have, even for Christians, are we not still prone to wander? Are our hearts still not drawn? New heart does not mean perfect, sinless heart. We are still prone to wander. And the problem is, when someone's wandering, you can't always tell which one he is. Is she a Christian who's wandering and stuck in sin? Or is she finally showing that she's not a Christian? Hard to tell. Fortunately, we don't have to tell. Because it's the same response to both. Same response to both. This path right here that you're walking leads to loss and eventually at the end, destruction. Don't walk it. Come back, please. Turn. Walk the path of life and blessing. Trust Him. Give your heart to Him. The same response to both. Repent and believe. So I too need to sound this warning to the church community at large. To everyone in here. Is your heart growing cold? Are you being led astray, turning aside to follow after some other god, some other idol that promises life but will not deliver, can't deliver, in fact? Are you bitter? Or are you listening to someone who is? Are you negative and complaining and judgmental and always feeling wronged and abused such that you are angry and set in opposition and unforgiving and spreading that like a root? 
It will destroy you if you keep on that path. Turn. Come back to the light that is life. I need to say that. I need to bring it to your personal attention. Maybe God will convict you as you sit here. And my hope is that He will. But Because as, as I thought about this and prayed about it, I just prayed, God, would you convict someone where they sit? Because I know the problem usually is that if I'm talking about you, you don't hear it. If you are the bitter one, you're bitter that I'm accusing you of being bitter. And you don't see it at all. So may God put His hand on you, not to smite you, but to woo you, to to draw you, to, to alert you. That's you. I need to say that, but notice what I just did. I just slightly turned that passage and made it personal. Which is okay, because if you're going to talk about anybody who is this, it obviously is a person, and it's okay to talk to people. I can do that. But if I want to be spot on with the passage, it's not talking to the individual who's bitter. It's talking to everybody else around the person who's bitter. You see that? This is the point. The main thrust in Deuteronomy and Hebrews is towards the whole community. It is a charge to the community to look over the whole community, to get involved in other people's business for their good and for the body's good. How un-American. How biblical. One more step before I apply this. So here's the exhortation to the community, to watch out for this in the body, nip it in the bud before it contaminates everything and leads to a sweeping away of everything, before it contaminates and defiles many, the words from Hebrews. That's your job. Okay, so how do we do that? What's God's mechanism? We do not do that by becoming the Gestapo. a secret state police organization from a ways back. We, we don't become cops, detectives, law enforcers. God's mechanism for this, look through the window, it's a grace promise mechanism, is it not? That's what verses 2 to 9 show us. Look what I have done for you. Look what I, the Lord your God, have done for you. Obey, enjoy, and there will be more tomorrow. Future grace is promised, and I am faithful. That's his mechanism, which is exactly what shows up in Hebrews chapter 12. After he copies our warning and adds on a few others, what does he do immediately? The last half of Hebrews chapter 12, he contrasts the law and punishment of Mount Horeb, smoking and fire with the grace and promise and glory of Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem. And he moves to sing. Church, you have not come to the smoking mountain of doom, but you have come to the New Jerusalem, the city of the living God in glory. Do you not see it? Do you not see the throngs of angels sat down at a feast of joy? With all of the church throughout all of the ages there with them, and in the midst of them, God Himself the Judge. And there also in the presence of Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant in His sprinkled blood. Those are His words. He sings them out and says, Therefore do not resist Him who speaks. Therefore, do not resist Him who speaks. From there, from that city, if we touched this old smoking mountain and died, is there not a greater glory and a greater burden to listen to this one speaking from heaven? Yes, absolutely. And we should respond as the ends chapter 12. We should respond by saying, Oh, how grateful I am that You have given to me a kingdom that is unshakable. Bless Your name, God Almighty. You have given me a kingdom that is better than anything else here. 
I want to listen to you and follow you. That is grace and promise motivation. That is joy painted before your eyes, not threat. Oh, that you would see that. That's how the writer of Hebrews follows his warning. So make the connection. Community of God, see to it that no one fails to obtain this grace. That no root of bitterness springs up. How? By realizing and reminding one another that you stand not before a hard mountain of law, but before a shining city. Preach that gospel to yourself and to each other and glory. It will produce fruit. Why? Because you're talking to people, primarily, you're talking to people who have new hearts and have a taste for it. Now some, it will be just conviction. And maybe it will lead to awakening in them, or maybe it will lead to a hardening in them. But most people here, you're speaking to people who have new hearts. And when you lay out Christ in front of them, there's something in them that resonates with Him. The Spirit. When you lay out the glory of the Gospel, they have eyes to see it. Even if there's a lot of clouds in between, they can catch something. By His grace, He has given them new hearts and given us hope that this step, the community engaging the community, will work. Because of what He's done. Make no mistake, this is our calling as a church. It is what a church is to be. It is gospel in community. If we aren't about this with each other, we aren't being a church. We aren't. Like a fire department that doesn't want to be bothered with fires. A hospital that's too busy to be bothered with sick people. Makes no sense. A church that doesn't want to engage with itself for holiness and joy and worship. What? A church... That wants to be 225 individual people. Don't mess with me. I won't mess with you. What? Where is that? It's not. Gospel and community is biblical. Now, we have a structure for that. We call them the gospel community groups. Great name. Took it from somewhere else. At least most of it. And there's all kinds of details to work out. And this is, I mean, we're ten months into this program, this project, and it is in its infancy and it has all kinds of trouble. Yes, granted. We need to work on it. We need to grow on it. Yes, absolutely. But I'm not trying to answer all those questions. I don't know the answers to all those questions. I'm trying to talk about something that is clearly biblical. The mandate for a heart change away from American individualism towards biblical community that is gospel and grace-centered has to be. It's hard for us because it's so radically countercultural. For me, too. This runs against every grain of my body. If, anybody, if any of you know me personally, you know I'm talking way above my head. But we need to live like this. We are called to it, not by adding in more meetings. This, this gospel community is not another meeting, whether on a Sunday afternoon, like our gospel community groups meeting today, or Thursday night. It's not another meeting. It is a way of life that is a living with each other constantly, a people together. How in the world would you notice if somebody's got a root of bitterness growing in their lives and you say, hi, how are you doing in the hallway on Sunday? You'll never notice it unless they gripe to you, which they probably won't unless you're already on their side. How in the world would you know that somebody is being enticed away to follow after some other false god of the nations just saying hello across the auditorium? You won't. You've got to sit in somebody's living room for a long time with them to know them and to see how they work to see a pattern and to ask questions and not as the Gestapo, but lovingly, graciously say, brother, sister, are you walking, question, are you, are you walking a path that leads to loss? I wonder. Let's talk. 
I love you. Not, I'm going to get you and show you you're beneath me and I'm better, which sometimes is why we avoid this, right? That's what it feels like, that we're going to be getting each other to show who's better. Could, could we all just start by admitting that we all could get each other? You could get me, I could get you. What's the point? God could get all of us. We don't want to work like that. God is not seeking to have us be like that. There are all kinds of details here. But maybe this calls for repentance in your life if you're holding people off because you don't want to be bothered, they're messy, or you're holding them off because you don't want to be bothered, you're messy. Probably both of those things are true. You have a new heart, Christ is for you. You'll be okay. My point this morning, not to answer all these questions, but to simply bring this out from this text and from the book of Hebrews, personal holiness is a community concern. It is a biblical mandate. We are our brother's keepers. That's in the Bible. Let me wrap this up with this sentence. Given new hearts and given a community, which work together, given new hearts and given a community, we can grow in holiness for our joy. That is good. We have been given both of those things by God, and for that we should praise Him. Let me pray. Father, would you move in us however you wish to move in us right now. I can imagine some ways that you want to, you want to convict people of their, of their isolationism. Or you want to give people ideas who want to respond but don't know how. You want to give people ideas about what they can do or how they need to engage with so-and-so. Move in us. There are some here who don't know you. Move in them to... Point that out to them and to draw them after you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people submitted to you, surrendered to you, a community that is gospel-centered as you want us to be. For your glory and for our good, I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.